Well, we've worshipped through baptism, prayer, and song. Now let's worship through the reading of God's Word. If you'll remain standing and turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, as Pastor Bruce continues, Joy in the Journey. We'll be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16 together, as that is the text that we'll be preaching from this morning. As Philippians 3, we've been looking at Don't Waste Your Life, Make It Count, and Joy in the Journey for the whole book, and today we're looking at Pressing On, and you can find that text in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. If you need a, a pew Bible, if you don't have one with you, you can find it on page 1166 in the pew Bible. So please follow along as I read uh, from Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for Pastor Bruce and Pastor Chris, our pastors who study it and proclaim it to us. We ask that you would be with Pastor Bruce as he brings the message this morning. Help us to be attentive. Help us to uh, learn what you would have us to learn this week and and, uh, apply it in our lives and be in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. And I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we continue in our series, Join the Journey this morning through the book of Philippians. You, perhaps the most famous Christian song ever written is, you might guess, would be Amazing Grace. And uh, in fact, that song, Amazing Grace, was written in 1772 by none other than John Newton, who was celebrating God's intervening grace in his life. But in 2001, CBS actually kind of hijacked the term Amazing Grace for a show that they now call The Amazing Race. In fact, it's now in its 33rd season. Unbelievable. It's gone on that long. The Amazing Race, as most of you know, is about sending teams of two people around the world in a month. They collect dues, they compete in different challenges, and they have to meet at checkpoints along the way. And the way it works is the last team to arrive at a checkpoint is eliminated from the race. So there's really not much amazing grace in the amazing race. Thankfully, though, that's not the case in the race that God has put us on as Christ followers. In fact, it was God's amazing grace that set Paul on his race And it was God's amazing grace that enabled Paul to finish his race. And perhaps that is why one of Paul's all-time favorite metaphors for the Christian life, for the journey that we're on, hopefully joy in your journey, is running a race. So, for instance, Paul speaks of his own life as a race in Acts 20.24 when he says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Paul says in Galatians 5, 7, you were running a good race who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. And so if there was a section of Scripture that could be called the amazing race, it's right here 
in Philippians chapter 3. As we have seen so far, Paul uses, specifically here in this chapter, his own testimony to plead with us to make your life count for the glory of God. Having described his all-consuming desire to know Christ in verse 10, Paul now tells us, listen, I am not standing still. I am not stagnant in this. I'm not slowing down. I am still running hard toward the finish line in this race that God has set me on. Paul refuses here to be sidelined short of the goal and the prize that awaits him there, knowing Christ in all his fullness. Nor will Paul let the believers at Philippi just kind of drop out of the race and quit. So he urges them. He urges us now through his letter to keep pace with him in this race all the way to the end, all the way to the goal. In other words, Paul is pleading with us through his own testimony, his own life example. Don't waste your life. Make account for God's glory. And by doing so, you will experience joy in your journey. And so we might think of Paul not only as his fellow runner, but he is also our example to follow in running the race. And he's saying to us now here in verses 12 through 16, the life that counts for God's glory presses on in the race. It presses on in the race. That is the central idea of these verses here, 12 through 16. That's what Paul is wanting to get across to us this morning. It's what he wants you to take away and leave here with. Press on in this race that God has set you on. It's been said that the Christian life, it is not a sprint. Rather, it's a marathon. In finishing a long-distance race, it's like a marathon. It is all about endurance. It's all about perseverance. It's all about pressing on. And so twice here in these verses, Paul declares, I press on. I press on. It describes this ongoing, grasping, strenuous pursuit that requires all of one's energy, fortitude, and focus. It's an attitude that says, I am not quitting no matter what. I am pressing on. I am not wasting my life. I am making it count for God's glory. And so Paul is exhorting us here to press on in the race. Even if you've fallen, even if you are struggling in the race, he doesn't want to see you eliminated from the race, but instead invigorated to keep pressing on in the race. Now, some of you, this morning, you may feel rather strong in the race that you're running right now. You feel strong in your journey. But others of you perhaps feel a little exhausted. Even this morning as you came to church, you're like, I'm not sure I really want to come to church. I'm tired. I'm tired physically. I'm tired emotionally. And most of all, I'm exhausted spiritually speaking in my journey. In fact, you may be to the point where you just want to quit. Perhaps you've even stumbled and fallen a few times and now you're on the ground and you are ready to quit. Listen, with God's grace, you can get up. In fact, with God's grace, you need to get up. You need to keep going. All of us are rooting for you because none of us are perfect, as we will see. And to help us now to press on in this race, we're going to frame what Paul says in these verses around the components of a race. You have the starting line, you have the race itself, you have the goal and the prize of the race, and then you have the mindset that we need to run with in the race. So let's look at it this morning. Number one, the starting line. 
the starting line. And Paul tells us that the starting line is all about being humble and hopeful in the gracious grip of Jesus Christ. Now imagine that you're at the starting line of a marathon. How many have actually ran a marathon? That's what I thought, all two of us. And that doesn't include me. I have no intention of running a marathon. No desire. Maybe ride a bike in a marathon, but run, no way. So let's imagine, we're pretending here that you're in a marathon, you're at the starting line, and what are you going to think about as you start? Before the gun goes off, what do you focus on? Listen, Paul's perspective is here. You dwell on the gracious grip that Christ has on your life. You meditate on it, and as you do, that truth gives you hope that you will finish the race. And although Paul's goal is to finish the race, listen, his confidence that he will actually finish the race, that he will reach the goal, is grounded in a theological truth here. Is grounded in the gracious grip of Jesus Christ on his life. Paul says in verse 12, look at it again in your Bibles. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And then notice what he says, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Whoa, the whole gospel can be summarized in that last phrase. That is an amazing phrase, astonishing phrase. Jesus Christ has made me his own. What a wonderful statement of Paul's conversion. He was seized by the grace of God, and Jesus made him his own. You might remember years before, God's grace seized Paul on the road to Damascus and set him then on a different race in which he now runs. And so Paul says, but I press on to make it my own, to make this race my own race. Why? Because Jesus Christ has now made me his own. In other words, Paul's goal to finish the race and to know Christ fully, what he calls make it his own, is somehow connected, it's linked to this glorious truth that Jesus Christ has made Paul his own. Paul's point here is that he's pressing on to seize the prize at the finish line because Christ already seized him at the starting line. And so Paul presses on toward a future prize that is not yet fully in his grasp. Listen, he knows Christ. Just as we know Christ through through saving faith at the moment of salvation. But Paul does not yet know Christ as he longs to know him. Paul has not, quote, gained Christ as fully as he desires. And he has not made his own all that Jesus has won for him with his death and resurrection. But because Christ seized him at salvation, Paul presses on now with all his strength that the Spirit gives him. He is confident that he will actually cross the finish line through the grace that will not let him go. Now this focus that Paul has here on Christ's grip on his life is all the more important when you consider what Paul says in the very first part of this verse. Verse 12. Look at it again. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, think about that. Because if anyone had reason to brag about his accomplishments, it was none other than who? The Apostle Paul, right? But he doesn't do that. Paul says that even though he has counted everything lost for the sake of Christ, he says, Listen, that doesn't mean I've arrived. He isn't perfect. He hasn't entered the resurrection state yet. 
And so despite being called an apostle by God, despite being the greatest missionary in the history of the church, despite writing most of the New Testament, despite all that he endured in persecution for Christ, Paul admits, listen, I haven't arrived. I have not arrived. In fact, I love what Warren Wiersbe says. He put it this way. Paul never permitted himself to be satisfied with his spiritual progress. He was satisfied with Jesus Christ, yes. But he was not satisfied with his Christian life, or we might say with his journey. He lived with a sense of holy dissatisfaction. You might say, well, what made the difference in all that? The gospel made the difference. The grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. The gospel humbled Paul. When you look at the way Paul talked about his life here, compared to the way he talked about his life before Christ seized him on the road to Damascus, listen, there's a huge difference. Verse 6, he said, in the law, listen, I'm blameless, dude. You can't touch me. I am blameless in the law. That's the kind of Pharisee I am. And so he is talking about himself up here as a self-righteous Pharisee. Paul thought himself as having arrived. But now the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ has humbled him to the point that he says, by God's grace, I have come a long way, but I haven't arrived. I am still pressing on. What an example for us to follow. Listen, the truth is, we can get a little self-satisfied. Because we tend to compare our running with other Christians. And we usually, when we do that, we always find someone faster than us or slower than us. Yeah, slower than us. I'm never going to compare my running to somebody who's better and faster. Are you kidding me? And you probably do the same thing. And we need to avoid the danger of comparing ourselves to someone slower than us, but yet also someone who's faster than us. Either extreme won't lead you to press on in the race. In fact, it will lead you to pride because you think you're so much faster than that Christian or discouragement because you think you are so much slower than him or her. Listen, Paul is not comparing himself to anyone here. Rather, he is focused on the only one that matters, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, I haven't arrived, but I press on towards Jesus. Why? Paul is fully aware he's in the gracious grip of Christ. And this confidence that Christ sees him is what motivates him. It's what compels him to keep pressing on in the race. In fact, I love this idea here because Paul uses the exact same word in verse 6 to prove how zealous He was to press on in persecuting the church. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And so can you imagine this change in his life now? Before he was seized by Christ on the Damascus road, Paul was zealous. In fact, that's why he was going to the city of Damascus, to persecute Christ's followers. And he was zealous in that. But now he is zealous in what? To press on in the race toward Christ. Now listen, if you've been seized by Christ, you realize you are in his grip. And nobody is snatching you out. You are in the gracious grip of Jesus Christ. Therefore, listen, let that truth motivate you and compel you to press on in confidence, 
that you will finish the race. You will cross the finish line. Yes, you've come a long way, but also realize you have not arrived. So press on. And as you do, remember that Christ has made you his own. Meditate. Ponder Christ's amazing grace in your life. Marvel at his redemption of your life. Focus on the truth that Christ has seized you. He's redeemed you out of the bondage of sin. And he has set you free to run a race to the finish line. A race that is full of joy. Let this fuel your heart to press on, knowing what Paul has already told us back in chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, and I am sure of this. In other words, I'm confident of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we finish this race, not in our own power, but in the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that dwells with it. Whoa! We're in the grip of Christ. And this brings us to the race. Because once the race is started, what do you do? In a race, do you stand? You run, right? So how do you run? Well, notice number two, the race. Run with single-minded concentration and determination. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says, brothers. When he says brothers, he's not being chauvinistic. That, That word there includes both genders here. Male and female. Brothers and sisters. Listen, it's it's a brethren. The word's brethren. To encompass all Christ followers. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now here, Paul is a marathoner who refuses to be distracted. He runs with this single-minded concentration and determination. But one Thing I do. And there's a whole, we could spend a whole sermon, we could, we could spend a whole hour talking about that, right? Most Christians are sidelined because they're distracted by many, many, many things. Not necessarily even bad things. Paul says, but this one thing I do. One commentator wrote, like a heat-seeking missile, Paul is locked onto the goal of pursuing Christ. And in the context of a race, that means you run with a single-minded, you are lasered in, concentration and determination. How? Paul tells us how. By forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, there's a picture coming up on the screen. And it's a bronze sculpture commemorating the race between Roger Bannister and John Landy during the 1954 British Empire Games in Vancouver. This race was actually called the Miracle Mile because it was the first race in history that featured two runners who had both run the mile in less than four minutes. Before the race, Roger Bannister strategized that he would actually relax during the third lap and he would save all his energy for the last lap. But as they began that third lap, John Landy began to stretch out his lead even more. And immediately, Bannister, Roger Bannister, had to adjust his strategy and increase his pace. And so the lead was quickly cut in half, and he was gaining ground on Landy as they headed into the fourth and final lap. But Landy began running even faster, and Bannister followed suit. Both men were running as fast as they could. Landy was still in the lead by only a few steps. And the crowd, as you can imagine, was just roaring with cheers. And, and then came that famous moment. When Landy did the unthinkable, he looked back. He looked back over his left shoulder 
which was enough to slow his rhythm. And in that split second, Bannister just shot right past him and won the race. It was a fatal lapse in concentration on his part. Lander, Landy actually later told a Time magazine reporter, and I quote, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won. After the sculpture was made, Landy commented, while Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back, I'm probably the only one ever turned into bronze for looking back. <laughs> I, I can only imagine that if Paul was there, and if Paul was John Landy's coach, he would have told him, probably more than once, before the race, John, listen, no matter what you do, no matter what, don't look back. Don't look back. You keep straining forward to the finish line. And Paul knew that you must forget what lies behind if you're going to finish the race. Why? Because you can't move forward if you're still focused in the past. And that is so freeing, is it not? Because if we will take to heart what Paul is saying here, God is calling us actually to forget our past so that we might move forward in the present. Now, was Paul suggesting this blanket of amnesia over our past, that we just forget everything? No, forget here, this word, it doesn't mean that you lose your memory, but it does mean that you don't let your past influence your present. Paul's just listed his credentials in the same chapter, remember? which make up his impressive resume and which he boasted in until Jesus seized him. And so Paul has not, quote, forgotten his credentials in the sense that they were erased from his memory. But here's the deal. They no longer occupy his attention as the focus of his concern and confidence as they did before. Neither is Paul suggesting that we somehow mentally erase our own sins and mistakes in the pain of our past. But Paul is telling us that in Christ, we can actually break free from the power of the past. And we can reach forward to what lies ahead. So Paul's forgetting what lies behind here. It's a, can we say this? It's a special kind of forgetfulness. The kind that dares not look back. So what exactly should we forget? Let me offer two suggestions here. This isn't any notes, but I would jot it down. Here's what you forget. You forget past achievements and past failures. Past achievements and past failures. Peter O'Brien, a commentator, put it this way. Paul would not allow either the achievements of the past or, for that matter, his failures in the past to prevent his gaze from being fixed firmly on the finish line. In this sense, he forgets as he runs. And I just love that expression that he uses. He forgets as he runs his race. So in our journey, we are forgetting as we run. Sure, there's no doubt that your past affects your life. We all understand that. We know that. And it affects your life either for good or for bad, does it not? But your past doesn't have to determine your future. Why? Because the gospel is way more powerful than that. Just look at the guy who wrote this book of Philippians. I mean, after all, this is the same guy who persecuted Christians to the death, according to Acts 22.4. And yet we do not find Paul saying here, oh, how I'm just limited. My past experiences have made me damaged goods now. I can't continue to run the race. He simply forgets as he runs. And you can too. So follow Paul's lead. Forget past 
failures. Don't allow past failures to keep you looking back in defeat. Listen, every Christian here this morning has failed God at some point. Every one of us. And you have to be able to forget as you run. Yes, sin is serious. God in the Bible makes that abundantly clear that our sin is serious. In fact, sin is so serious that only the death of Jesus Christ can fix it and remedy it. It's that serious. And so not forgetting would be taking yourself too seriously and also not taking God's grace in the gospel seriously enough. By not forgetting past failures and sins, we are in essence, we are refusing to believe the gospel and how it applies to our lives. The good news that you have been forgiven. The good news that you are now righteous in Christ. Listen, nothing will keep you from from moving forward like refusing to accept God's forgiveness for past failures. You will be stuck as long as you hold on to them. So remember, not your past failures. Instead, remember the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and press on in the race. Follow Paul's lead, not only to forget past failures, but follow his lead to forget past achievements, though, as well. Because you cannot live on yesterday's successes. Successes. Why do we find Paul occasionally relating and sharing? And I mean, while we do find him occasionally sharing with us his some of his ministry achievements, we don't find him using past victories as an excuse not to press on in the presence. Now, yeah, we should be grateful to God for what God's done in the past, for for what's happened. And we should be grateful for all of his blessings. In fact, we should even take our cue from, from David in Psalm 103, and we should recount the blessings of God in our life. But don't use these past victories as an excuse to to now live complacently and even to live indifferently in the present. As one commentator and author observed, Paul did not keep turning over in his mind the good old days of active service before he was in prison. He did not constantly remind himself of all of his achievements, nor continually recount those special high points of his relationship with Christ. Listen, he's not distracted by the trophies of the past. Forgetting is not an active loss of memory. No, it is an active, continuous discipline of the mind and heart. Although he did not actually forget the past, he emphatically chose to disregard it. Why? Because Paul knows that past achievements can create this unhealthy tendency to cling to those glory days that we kind of describe them as. Past achievements will keep you complacent. And in time, it will lead to indifference. Past failures will keep you discouraged. So like Paul, choose to forget as you run. And as Paul ran his race... As you forget, as you run, he shifted his mindset. He shifted into high gear of forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul ran in the liberating freedom of this one thing. As another author writes, for Paul, there is just one course of action open before him. To forget the past with all its failures and successes, all those things that could paralyze him with guilt or impede him with pride, and to stretch out to the future, straining forward. 
You, you can imagine, you can picture what that looks like. It pictures a runner with every muscle engaged in the final all-out sprint to the finish line. And his eyes are fixed straight ahead on the goal and his hands stretching forward out. As one author aptly put it, Paul is in hot pursuit of his prize. So what is that prize? What is the goal and prize Paul's pressing on toward? Well, that brings us to number three, is to know Christ in his fullness. It's to know Jesus Christ in his fullness. That is the goal and the prize. Look what Paul says in verse 14. Look at it. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Now, as you read that, you can almost feel the intensity behind those words. You can almost feel the passion in Paul's words when he says, for the second time now, I press on. I press on. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not expecting this race to get any easier. But I press on knowing the prize will be worth it all. So what's the goal? Well, the goal is to finish the race. That's always the goal when you're in a race, is to finish. Now, I know some of us want to win the race. But, you know, when it comes to a marathon, I'm just, you know, let's finish it. Let's finish the race. That's the goal. And what's the prize? Here is knowing Christ in his fullness. Now, in Paul's day, do you know what they got for winning the race? A marathon? In the city of Athens, a victorious athlete was given, listen, get this, 500 pieces of money, free meals, and front row seats at any theatrical event of your choice. Now, in the amazing race, they they get a million bucks. In fact, one year, the winning team got two million bucks. According to Paul, though, our prize as Christ followers is far greater than money, food, or front row seats. Listen, it is the prize of gaining Christ, knowing Christ in his fullness, and finally becoming like Christ. So Paul reminds us that the prize, it is this upward call into the very presence of our Lord. When our lowly bodies, this tent, as Paul calls it, this shell, will be transformed into a glorious body, and we are perfected in righteousness or holiness. And we see that the destination here is not a promotion, it's not a plaque, it's not a presentation. Yes, there are rewards that we can look forward to, but Paul says the real prize, the ultimate prize here is a person. It is the glorious presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we'll see next Sunday, Paul knew of people who had their their minds, their eyes, their mindset on earthly things. And it was a distraction for them. The horizons of their hopes actually constricted to the here and now of what they saw and touched. And they were falling behind in the race because of that. But Paul is insisting that we take a deeper look at this goal for the prize that we press on toward. Dennis Johnson challenges us by writing. Listen to what he says. The prize for which we run is so much more than merely escaping this world's miseries. I read that and I'm like, man, has that not been the goal for most Christians in this pandemic year? How sad. Has that just been your goal for the last year? 
he, he writes, he says, listen, it's bigger than that. It's better than never going hungry again or having shelter from the rain or the cold or being free from the pain of cancer or arthritis or having a reunion with lost loved ones. He goes on to write, he says, the best thing about the prize that awaits us at the finish line is not the taste of the food at the Lamb's wedding supper, as delightful as that will be. It is not having tears of sorrow wiped from our eyes never to return. It is not streets of gold or mansions over the hilltop that never need repairs or alarm systems to discourage thieves. No, the most intense pleasure of heaven is found in John's vision of the coming new Jerusalem, where we will worship Jesus Christ and see his face to the glory and praise of God. That is the prize. This is the prize that Paul sees as he presses on toward the goal. It's the prize of knowing. It's the prize of seeing. It's the prize of worshiping Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I am running the race and I am pressing on toward Jesus Christ. That's the prize. So let me ask. What prize are you running after and pressing on toward right now? This week, what is your prize? What are you running after? And don't say, oh, I'm not running. No, we all run after something. You may not actually be able to verbalize it. Maybe you've never written it down. But we all are running after something. You're in hot pursuit of something. Well, maybe not hot pursuit. But you're chasing after something. For most people, it's just these wasted treasures of the world. These temporary things of the world that are just going to be meaningless when Jesus comes. What are you chasing after? Does that goal of knowing, seeing, and worshiping Jesus, does it actually captivate you? Do you wake up in the morning and think about that? Listen, no lesser goal than Jesus Christ will ultimately satisfy you. Since no lesser goal actually fits the purpose for which God designed you for. No wonder, Paul says, don't waste your life on the treasures of this world. Focus on something greater than that. No wonder Paul wants to protect us from wasting our lives By settling for second best. Listen, the treasures of this world all fall short of the treasure that God promises to those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis wrote, and I've I've quoted this many, many times as I preach, but it is a great quote, and I'm going to give it to you again. He, He writes, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What he means is we're too ple- far too easily pleased with these temporary treasures of the world instead of the ultimate treasure of Jesus Christ. 
So don't waste your life chasing after lesser things and mud pies. Make your life count by running after one thing and the greatest thing. And it's Jesus. Will it be easy? No. It's never easy in this race. And that is why we must embrace a runner's mindset. Look at it, number four. And that is to keep pressing on in the race together. Notice the advice Paul gives us in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature... Think this way. So he's talking about how to think. It's a mindset here. And if anything, or if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, Paul's point is that the only ones who are, quote, perfect are those who see themselves as Paul sees himself. And that is imperfect. Maturity is found in recognizing that you are not fully mature. In other words, you're not perfect. That you have not arrived, but pressing on toward the day when you will be made perfect like Jesus is. So mature Christians, what they do is they keep pressing on in the race. Why? Because they understand we're not there yet. And Paul says, if you think otherwise, well, God will reveal that to you also. The bottom line is what Paul says here in verse 16. Look at it. Only, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And did you notice that Paul included himself with his readers and us? And so that is encouraging because Paul is exhorting us here to keep pressing on in the race. And did you notice it's to do so together? Paul says twice here, let us, let us. In other words, this is a community focus in running this race. In other words, we don't run this race isolated. We don't run this race on our own. You will never finish this race on your own. That's why we need the church, the local body of Jesus Christ, to run this race. That's why we must be in community with one another. You cannot. There is no such thing. And Paul has repeated this emphasis all throughout the book of Philippians. It is a community project. There is no such thing as being a Christian and being a Christ follower and being in in the race all alone apart from the body of Christ, a local church. You just don't find it. Twice he says, let us, let us. And that means we have a responsibility with one another to encourage and support and encourage. Pick them up when they have fallen. Help them come along. And yes, that even means confrontation as well. When you see a brother or sister that has fallen away because of sin, in a spirit of love, you go to them. What's going on here? You're jeopardizing something. I could go on and on. I hope you're getting the point that this is important. What we do is critically important. Together, we may all be at different places in the race, but praise God for how far he has brought you along. But know that we are in this race together, not alone. And so together, let us keep pressing on in the race. Don't lose ground in making your life count for God's glory. Together, Paul says, let us hold true to what we have already attained in the race. And so here's the question. Here is the question. Are you pressing on or are you fizzling out? Are you pressing on or are you fizzling out? Listen, when it comes to making your life count, none of us has arrived. None of us. 
But God has redeemed our lives to make it count for God's glory. So press on in the race with God's grace and do it together. There's no doubt that pressing on takes endurance, as we said at the very beginning. Otherwise, all of us will just fizzle out. The good news is that we can't endure. The good news is that we can't keep pressing on in the race with God's grace. It's coming up on the screen a picture of an elderly gentleman holding a boot. You may be wondering, what's the purpose of that? In fact, why is he holding a boot? What's up with that? Pay attention, I'll explain. Did you know that the world's longest and toughest race was actually an ultramarathon that was first held back in 1983? It was 500, get this, 544 miles long, beginning in Sydney, Australia, and ending in Melbourne, Australia. So in 1983, 150 world-class athletes actually signed up and converged on Sydney to begin this race. Let me tell you, they are in shape. You can look at them and you can tell these guys are super fit. And yet up walks a 61-year-old potato farmer with no teeth, wearing overalls and work boots. And people thought, like you and I would think, okay, here's a local guy to watch the race. Oh, no, he wants to actually run the race. And so he walks up to the table, and he demands, I want a number for the race. They looked at him like, you got to be kidding. I mean, you won't even make it a mile. Nevertheless, they gave him a number, 64, and the gun goes off. His name was Cliff Young. Cliff grew up on a 2,000-acre sheep farm. As a young boy, Cliff was in charge of watching out for 2,000 sheep. And on that farm, they did not have four-wheel drive vehicles. They didn't even have horses. When storms came in, Cliff would go out and he would run to herd those sheep. And sometimes it took him two or three days running around out on the farm to get all of the sheep where they needed to be. And so the race begins. Cliff runs at this slow loping, methodical pace. And, of course, he trailed the pack by by a large margin at the end of the first day. But while the other competitors stop to sleep for six hours, Cliff, what do you think he's doing? He just just keeps on running. In fact, he, it says, he, he ran continuously, and this blows me away, he ran continuously for five days taking the lead during the first night and eventually winning the race by 10 hours. Before running the race, he had told the press that he had previously run for two or three days straight, rounding up sheep in gum boots. That's what those boots are. He claimed afterwards that during the race, he imagined that he was running after sheep, trying to outrun a storm. He also said that he ran without his dentures because they rattled when they ran. I cracked up at that. And as you might imagine, let me tell you, in 1983, Cliff became, he became a national hero after winning this ultramarathon. And interestingly, professional runners began to study and actually experiment with Cliff's slow, unorthodox shuffle that he ran with to finish his race. Go figure. You say, what's the point? The point's this. Finishing the race comes by endurance comes by endurance. We know this. We know 
what the, what the writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, let us, again, community, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with what? Run with what? Endurance or perseverance, the race that is set before, set before us, looking to Jesus. Remember, the Christian life, it is not a 100-yard dash. It's an ultra marathon. And if all you've got in this race is a slow shuffle like Cliff, that's okay. You just keep pressing on with God's grace and you will make your life count for God's glory. With your heads bowed. And as we close out our time here from the service and as we pray, Lord, I can't help but think that there are people who are they're running a race, but they are going in the wrong direction. They're running their own race. They're pursuing their own life, their own plans, their own career, but they're running in the wrong direction. And to that, the Bible has a word. It's the word repent, which means to turn around or to change direction. And I pray, Lord, that they would change direction and start running your race and pursue the Christ who is pursuing them. And so even right now, perhaps there are some of you who need to trust Jesus as your Savior. You need to begin the race today by humbly bowing your knee before Christ at the cross, confessing your sin, confessing yourself as a sinner who's in need of a Savior, and by faith asking Jesus to save you and forgive you. You can do that right now. Right here in the quietness of this auditorium, you can cry out to Jesus Christ to save you. And trust me, if you will, you will never look back. I know many of you, you've started the race. You did a long time ago where God seized you. But somewhere along the way, perhaps you've stopped running. In fact, perhaps you have stumbled and fell, or maybe you've just gotten tired and you decided, to, man, I'm just going to take a break. And now you're sitting on the sidelines. Listen, it is time to get back in the race. There's a Savior to serve. There's a price to be won. And so let me encourage you to run in such a way as to finish the race and win the prize. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us so that we can receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven. Give us the grace to keep pressing on in this race and to make our lives count for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, that you would keep pressing on in the race. And if you need help in doing that, if you need to talk with myself or Pastor Chris, just need encouragement one-on-one over coffee or whatever the case might be, listen, contact us, reach out, out to us, and perhaps you... Maybe you've never started the race. Maybe God's pricking at your heart, but he hasn't seized you because you haven't relented. You haven't surrendered to him, the grace of God. That's your place to start. Cry out to him and let him save you.